Welcome to the Non-Technically Speaking Podcast. I am your host, Ivy Shu. Here, I interview leaders in tech with a non-technical background from established leading markets like Silicon Valley in Beijing to emerging markets like Nairobi and Jakarta. We explore what business and operations-minded leaders bring to tech companies and the impact that they're able to make. I may also pop in here to solo show and share some stories of my own. I hope that all this content inspires you to confidently develop your own impactful career as a non-technical leader in tech. Join the community of listeners and non-technical leaders by visiting nontechnicallyspeaking.com. Today, you're just here with me again on episode four. How's everyone liking the interviews? I've gotten a lot of new connections on LinkedIn with listeners complimenting the content as well as about a dozen of you guys signed up for the community waitlist. I am really, really grateful for that. I really want to bring more like-minded people together so that you guys can network and get access to more opportunities. So please do connect with me. So today I'm coming on to talk about something that every single person I've caught up with since I came back from my year-long journey around the world interviewing tech CEOs. Yep, you can probably guess. Um, The question is, what is your biggest takeaway? Or what are your biggest takeaways? Honestly, I didn't even know until midway through the year that I was looking for inspiration for my own life. For every person that I met along the way, I was hoping I would be able to take some piece of their life and it'll inspire me to create that little something in my life as well. That's probably what you guys are looking for. So I'm going to share with you the top takeaway that I learned. And I had lots of takeaways, lots of lessons, but for this episode, let's just focus on one. So for those of you that don't know, a short summary of what I did last year is that I traveled to 16 fast-moving markets to learn more about the challenges and opportunities there. I met with dozens of entrepreneurs, small business owners, and employees at the biggest and most successful companies, like dozens of people in each market. I talked to locals, stayed with locals, and read a ton of books on economics, geopolitics, history, and culture. I did this because I wanted to see what there was outside of Silicon Valley. I wanted to see where I might be able to bring more value because if you listen to episode zero, I left Silicon Valley for this trip because I didn't feel like I was being valued as a non-technical in tech. So I went off to see what's outside of the Bay Area, but also to try to learn more about how the world worked and what I can do with the rest of my career. I learned a lot of lessons, as I said, but let's start with just one. And it requires summarizing my entire experience instead of a lesson learned in one specific market. So this is a takeaway that I formed overall, overarching all my experiences. The first takeaway that I have is that there are opportunities everywhere. That is the main thing that I learned this year. There are opportunities everywhere, as long as you are competent, hardworking, and focused. I went to China and saw this huge domestic market. I thought that the best opportunities were where there were a lot of people to sell to, so that even if you don't, if even if you have a tiny niche, even if you can capture a 0.0001% of the market, there's still millions of dollars worth of that market size. I remember meeting with the founder of Kawo 
oh my gosh, it might be Kawo. <laughs> I think it's Kawo. Um, it's a B2B company trying to be the hoot suite of China. And it integrates with WeChat and Weibo. And he said that if he can capture all the companies in a five mile radius from his office, that he would be a multimillionaire. <laughs> Competition is fierce, but opportunities are limitless. And the consumer market is growing in China as companies talk about lower tier markets, new companies serving the same need as established players, but instead in the tier one, tier two cities, they are dominating instead in the lower tier markets. For example, Taobao and Jingdong JD versus Pinduoduo in e-commerce. Pinduoduo targets the lower tier markets in group buy, while Taobao and Jingdong and Tianmao, Tmall tend to be for first and second tier cities and targeting families with higher income. So I concluded that after China, that the secret to finding a great market with great market opportunities must be a large domestic consumer market that continues to grow with more consumers coming online and ready to spend fast adoption and with government support for innovation. Then shortly after China, I went to Japan. Japan is a bit past its heydays of the 80s. Japan is still a cash-heavy society, so not even credit cards are taken in some places. And as the fourth largest economy in the world, it has barely any software tech companies. They only have one unicorn startup right now, and most IPOs are in the 100 to 500 million range. So compare that with all the billion dollar unicorn IPOs this year from Silicon Valley as well as from China, and also this whole cash heavy society, China was completely cashless. You couldn't even try to pay with your credit card in different places, so that's why it was such a huge shock when I went to Japan on how behind it was in terms of software. So in order to understand why Japan has not dominated the internet and software age like it dominated the hardware industry, like with cars, I personally believe that we have to look at Japanese culture and the values ingrained within the culture, which, although similar to Chinese culture, is actually quite different. For example, there's Hone to Tatemai. Uh, man, I might be pronouncing this wrong. I'm sorry to all the Japanese listeners out there, but it means private versus public face. We all, to some extent, have a side that we show to the public and another more authentic side that we only show to people we can trust. The number of people grouped into public and private, the size of the gray zone, and the scales of trust varies by person. But in Japanese culture, everyone has the same public face, polite and smiling and careful not to make anyone uncomfortable or inconvenienced. There is a clear right and wrong in how to behave in public, and everyone follows these unspoken rules. There is also Harage and Aimai. Um, again, sorry for the pronunciation. Harage is a form of rhetoric intending to express real intention and true meaning through implication, and Aimai is vagueness. So I'm actually reading this off Wikipedia right now. In order to not make anyone feel uncomfortable, Harage and Aimai are considered really desirable virtues in Japanese society. So the Japanese way of being vague and indirect is for the sake of harmony. The Japanese implicit way of communication is very difficult for non-Japanese people to understand. Whereas in Western culture, we value clarity and candid honesty. The Japanese value being polite, humble, considerate, etc. 
sensitive to others and knowing their place. For example, instead of ever saying no, the Japanese may use, I'll try my best, or reaching a decision will take some time, or I'll think about it, or it's a bit difficult. In terms of societal structure, there is the value of senpai, kohai, seniority roles. Senpai is someone that joined the organization earlier, kohai is someone that joined later. Kohai speak to senpai using very respectful words, and they must respect their decisions. This hierarchy is very informal, yet it governs how relationships are across everything from companies to schools. For example, in schools, kohais even have to bow to senpais. Uh, these rules are very strict through society in respecting your elders. Finally, there's shuden ishiki, Japanese group consciousness. So shuden ishiki teaches that the group as a whole outweighs the needs of the individuals. Uchi is those inside the group, so family and associates, and soto is those outside the group. Japanese life consists of remaining in the uchi while avoiding soto status. So being within the group and not associating with people outside the group. So loyalty to the group is really essential, which can be good or bad depending on the group's core values. Oftentimes, it's more important to retain group solidarity to maintain harmony rather than oppose the group, even if acting in opposition is the right thing to do. If an individual opposes the group, he risks being excluded from the group, which oftentimes is really unbearable for this entire society of people living in group-oriented society. Um, a common saying uh, exhibiting this in Japan is, the nail that sticks up is pounded down. <laughs> the nail being representative of an individual. So these values are not good or bad, but when everyone is used to thinking that everything is, should happen as it should, change is very difficult. Every one of our friends that we met, um, me and my fiance were traveling together, particularly those that haven't, who have experienced tech in any place outside of Japan, have really emphasized how slow companies move in Japan. This makes sense because fear of making people uncomfortable plus vagueness in communication plus groupthink plus seniority over ability plus adherence to the one way to do things, so tradition and processes, equals very, very slow. Most of the friends who I spoke with uh, were Canadian expats there or American expats. They were there for the food, the convenience, things happening as expected. They love these values. But I thought that surely no one would move to Japan for career advancement. I was proven wrong because I met with the director of product at PayPay, a mobile payments platform created in partnership between India's Paytm, SoftBank, and Yahoo. I learned that he was seizing the opportunity to bring new technologies from emerging markets to mature ones. In this case, India's mobile payments technology to Japan. Of course, we also can't forget about SoftBank, <laughs> investing in companies and emerging technologies all around the world and eventually bringing it to Japan when the consumer base might be ready. So now my theory of finding career advancement opportunities involved working in a fast-growing market that was ready for technology adoption in a large domestic market or help bring new technologies to mature markets and establish systems. What we learned in China is that the larger the population, the greater the opportunity. 
the reports in the WeChat groups that I'm part of now as a community to learn more about what's happening in China and to keep up really point toward country populations of over 100 million. Ideally young as points of high growth opportunity for startups. So everyone that I talked to in China was paying attention to places like Jakarta, Cairo, Ho Chi Minh. Uh, more customers, more problems, more competition for the best product, more money, more data. This is how I designed the rest of my trip outside of China. We wanted to go to highly populated startup hubs like Ho Chi Minh, Jakarta, Cairo, but Israel, Palestine has a population of just over 8 million, and yet it has produced unicorns like Fiverr, Waze, Viber, Wix, Pioneer, Compass, Lemonade, to name a few that I've heard of before. And as recently as 2012, Israel, Palestine, uh, only founded as a country in 1948, had more companies listed on the American NASDAQ stock exchange than any other country outside of the US and China. So I had to go. I wanted to know from all the people that I talked to when I was in Israel, how Israel manages to punch above their weight producing some of the world's top talent and way more unicorns than proportionate to the available talent, aka the population. So from there, everyone that I talked to, I heard this phrase, we are surrounded by our enemies. I heard that from literally everyone in those exact words without any probing. Israelis to their bone believe that they will be destroyed as a people, the Jewish people, if they do not stand up for themselves. They think that the whole country is like a startup, new and needing to move fast or else being surrounded by Arab countries on all sides, they will perish. This is a very real problem with war only 40 years ago, terrorist attacks the last few years and the ongoing Palestinian conflict. They really had to build a machine that shoots down missiles before the enemies could build better missiles. This kind of mentality results in fast progression in all areas, especially in defense technology. In fact, 30% of investments are in cybersecurity. Number two of why Israel manages to punch above their weight is that they have a army system where every Jewish Israeli is required to serve in the military at 18, both men and women. And the army isn't really what we expected it to be. Only 10 to 15% are combat soldiers in the Air Force, Navy, and foot soldiers. Those are typically from the roughest neighborhoods and the most Zionist. Everyone else can be anything from cooks, truck drivers, HR, recruitment, to special intelligence. In many of these roles, these kids who are just 18 are exposed to state-of-the-art technology at a very young age. Many learn engineering, leadership, management, and how to function in high-pressure environments. They're not treated as children and are expected to take responsibility in their roles. By the time they leave the army, they already have three years of work experience on top national projects giving them a much better idea on what to study. I know that a lot of American Canadian teens have no idea what they want to study in university, leading them to unfulfilling jobs, but that's not necessarily the case for Israeli teens. And this is the leading factor in how 9% of the population works in high tech, yet high tech accounts for 43% of Israelis' exports. Okay, lastly, a lot of Israelis answered that Israel is a B2B global startup nation. 
So when in China, I noticed that there weren't as many B2B startups that took off. So I predicted that when it comes to startup nations, first comes B2C companies to serve a large domestic market, then comes B2B companies in with the data dashboards, payments, et cetera, to support those B2C companies. Therefore, B2B unicorns exist only in more sophisticated markets. We've seen a rise of SaaS unicorns in the States, but this was not the case in Israel. Of $6 billion of capital raised in Israel in 2018, $5 billion went to B2B startups. So $5 billion out of $6 billion invested into B2B over B2C startups. While chatting with a supply chain startup founder and the head of startup grind in Tel Aviv, he really emphasized how Israeli founders saw themselves as partners to American and European companies. They were keen to source problems to solve in other places and provide solutions to other companies. Remember, 43% of exports of this whole country is in high tech. So the Israelis are just selling technology. There are also Jewish people everywhere in the world, especially in the West. This is a great source of network, capital, and business opportunities for Israeli companies. Just through these three examples of China, Japan, and Tel Aviv, Israel, we recognize that each country has its strengths and opportunities. Many of the emerging markets that I went to in Southeast Asia, like Malaysia, Jakarta, and then in the Middle East, Cairo, and even in Africa, like Nairobi, each have their own culture shaping the condition of their innovation ecosystem, as well based on the local problems and limitations that the country naturally has. Take Ethiopia, for example, it is just privatizing its telecom. The country is, closed, is still closed off to all private institutions. Everything is public. The privatization of telecom is a huge deal, and there's news that they will open up to more private companies, and therefore capitalism. This is like China 30 years ago. There are cultural shifts, economic policy shifts, and that creates opportunities everywhere. However, I really believe that it's up to you to take advantage of these opportunities, these opportunities that are everywhere. These opportunities are often disguised as challenges. But anywhere there is a challenge for a market of people, there is an opportunity for someone to go fix it. Take, for example, when I was in China in May, the government required that everyone in Shanghai separate garbage to dry, recycling, and wet, which is compost. Companies and organizations could be fined 50,000 to 500,000 yuan, which is 7,000 to $70,000, while individual offenders can be fined 50 to 200, so up to $30. This is actually quite a bit for Chinese households, especially for any street vendors who are dealing with a lot of wet garbage or those that might be throwing out containers full of food if it's not sold, right? So if that isn't just an added inconvenience, there are also set times that garbage is taken away. And I know in the West, this is very common, but this is completely new in China. And a lot of working professionals can't be home at certain times. And if forgotten, wet garbage is going to smell, especially in the summer in a lot of places in China. It's very, very hot. So overnight, instead of complaining about these challenges, 
dozens of startups popped up in Shanghai, like actually overnight. This would be at least four to six months down the line if the first startup came up. This is in Silicon Valley. If this happened in Silicon Valley, maybe a startup would catch on and build something that's ready for market four to six months, maybe a year down the line. But I mean, within a week of this policy announced before it was even officially implemented, like the policy hasn't taken, wasn't taken into action yet. It was just announced overnight. All these startups popped up in Shanghai from garbage sorters to people who will pick up your garbage for disposal and even apps that help you determine which bin the waste that you're holding will go into. So instead of chasing the biggest opportunity in the world, I'm choosing to look around me and see what I get inspired by. Because there are so many problems in the world and you have to find the one that you are best fit to solve. Instead of looking at Japan and deciding it's too slow for innovation, we can help them, help companies try to innovate. It is a problem that needs to be solved and you can help do that. Instead of looking at the lack of infrastructure in developing countries, we can help build that out as well. Instead of learning about individual opportunities, I'm taking away the energies and attitudes as entrepreneurs um, in different regions approach problems and how they evaluate to solve these problems. For example, from China, the hustle is real. There is a willingness to dive into any promising new industry and see opportunity in everything because there seems to be this inherent fear that if you don't take advantage of this opportunity, it will be gone and you will be left behind. From Israel-Palestine, it's about thinking outside the box. And it's easy to do that when there is no box. There's no limitations to who Israelis are building for because they must cultivate their minds and their talent and their domestic research bases and centers to find companies that need their problems solved. They have to really go out looking anywhere because they just don't have enough of a market back home. They can't just think within their borders, therefore making their opportunity mindset truly limitless. This has been a very, very long podcast for a solo show. I hope that you have something to take away from my greatest takeaway, which is there are opportunities everywhere. And there are so many places you can contribute value so long as you see that every challenge as an opportunity and really understand market changes to grasp what problems any of these changes are causing for people. So that's the end of episode four. If you loved it and want to hear more solo shows or want to know more about what I learned while traveling abroad as maybe a Chinese Canadian with US work experience in Silicon Valley, um, what I learned from different markets, from different people, I would love if you can connect with me on Instagram at IVXVINE, I-V-Y-X-V-I-N-E, or on LinkedIn, Ivy Shu, and let me know what you guys think. Uh, I will see you in the next episode.